Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 12. Page 1173 of your pew Bibles. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. A sermon titled, Sanctification and Sex. When someone sees the title of the sermon, I'm aware of possible reactions to the message, a message on sex. Some people welcome biblical teaching on this important topic, and I hope that that describes you. I hope that you would see that we'll be um, dealing with this important matter of sexuality, and you would look forward to biblical teaching on this matter. We all need to know what the Bible says concerning this. Um, Our denomination has a rich theological history, including good teaching on sex. We adopted an excellent report on the matter at Synod 2022 called the Human Sexuality Report, and um, my sermon today really just scratches the surface of a lot of the great teaching that you'll find reflected in that report. I think it's about 175 pages long and deals with all kinds of matters of sexuality. Uh, The report gives biblical and theological analysis of various matters, including pornography, gender identity, homosexuality, cohabitation, polygamy, polyamory, and divorce. And so um, we have, again, a rich theological tradition of teaching on this matter of sex. But even within that group of people who look forward to a sermon like this, I know that it's possible the reason you could look forward to a sermon on this is that you hope that I will challenge other people, not so much challenge you, that you would hope that as we open God's Word, that you would hope that I tackle issues that maybe you don't face, but other people face, and I need to deal with those people. And sometimes that could be a reason why somebody would look forward to biblical teaching on the matter, hoping that um, the, the aim of the sermon will be on those other people who face that other kind of sin that what I am faced with. But I hope that as we open God's word that we'll all submit to the Lord in this area, that we will all ask the Spirit to reveal where we have sinned and where we need to repent. We should remember Paul's command of 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and your doctrine closely. And he says that to a people who might be tempted to watch the life and doctrine of all the people around them very closely without really zeroing in on what's happening in their soul, in their heart, in their mind, with their body. So, watch your life and doctrine closely as we read the Word of God and as I preach this evening. I recognize that some people would prefer not to hear about sex in church. I suppose that some would rather read about this in a magazine that you see while you're in line at the grocery store. And that's the exact kind of person who would need to hear a sermon on sex. Um, Looking to the Word of God for our standard instead of the advice of often unregenerate people concerning what is good and what is sinful concerning sexuality. For others, you are just kind of squeamish about this type of thing being talked about in church. It seems a little dirty to some people. 
There is a history in American Christianity, including in our own tradition, to avoid talking about sex in our families and in the church. This is unfortunate and sad because the Bible gives such great teaching on it. We can dive into what the Bible teaches us concerning sex and should love what the Bible teaches. Right now, we are reaping the whirlwind in our families and in our denomination because of that error of being squeamish about talking about sex from the pulpit or in our churches or in our families openly talking about God's will for our lives, for our children's lives in this important matter. Again, I want to repeat, we are reaping the whirlwind now of generations past refusing to teach their children from the pulpit and in their families about what good sex is, according to God's word. So much confusion on this matter. And so, I hope that it sets you at ease at least a little bit, knowing that I'm preaching on this because we're just looking right through the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. I'm not here because of some hobby horse issue that I can't wait to comment about. No, we're preaching through Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, and the next section of his letter deals with sexual immorality. So this is in God's Word, and I must preach it. This is in God's Word, and you must believe it. That's why um, we're here tonight. That's why I'm preaching on this matter of sanctification that is becoming holy and how that relates to sex. So, having already prayed for God's illumination and His blessing upon our reading, let's look now at 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you In the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives us his Holy Spirit to you, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Thessalonian church is a loving church. Paul wrote in verse 9 of what I just read, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And here Paul is teaching that they have not just been taught by God, but he's saying they are doing well in this matter of loving one another in a, a brotherly, collegial kind of way. 
They have room for improvement, just like we all do. So he calls them to do this more and more. But they are showing godly conduct by loving each other in a brotherly way. What is the city of brotherly love that is located in southeast Pennsylvania? It is what? Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And that isn't just a nickname for it. That's just a translation of what the word means. That Philadelphia or Philadelphia means brotherly love, brotherly affection. And that word is right in our text today. It's actually Philadelphias um, in the, the passage that I just read in verse 9. So the Thessalonians are getting Philadelphias right, loving one another well caring for each other, showing affection to brothers and sisters in Christ. But we all know that there are other types of love, aren't there? There's, um, there's also this type of love called eros love or eros love, E-R-O-S. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, that's the type of love that Paul is teaching about, particularly in verses 3 through 8 of the chapter. And so while the Thessalonian church is doing well with Philadelphia, with philos love, they need teaching on this eros type of love. Eros is where we get the word erotic from. This is the type of love that is romantic and or sexual in nature. Just like in our culture today, the Thessalonians were prone to confusion and sin when it came to matters of sexual ethics, of sexual immorality. So Paul establishes here that God is the authority who determines what is pure and what is impure, including in our understanding of eros, of sexual love. It might seem strange today, but the idea that God would have a prescription for good sexual behavior would have been a new concept for the ancient Gentile person. I want to repeat that. It's really important for what Paul is teaching and there's going to be important application for our lives today. It was a, a fairly novel idea in Greco-Roman culture that the gods, or in this case of Gentile who is becoming Christian, that God would have a prescription for proper sexual behavior. It was often sort of understood that the gods were kind of operating on a different plane or different level and didn't have a code of ethics or a code of conduct as much for people, but that they would interact with people in a kind of, uh, they, they step into someone's life and step out of someone's life, and, and people would offer up sacrifices to these gods, just kind of hoping in an abstract way that they would bless them in some way. But the connection between the gods with how people were actually living their lives, their code of ethics, was actually fairly distant in this culture. And so what Paul is trying to establish here is that the Lord God, Yahweh, has expectations for what constitutes good sexual behavior. So Paul refers to the Thessalonian Gentiles as people who live in the passion of lust because they do not know God. In verse 5, that's what he taught the, uh, the Thessalonians about their Gentile neighbors. People don't know who God really is, and so how could they know God's standard for sexuality, for what is, is good and what is sin? And so hearing that, we might wonder, well, what was the standard for 
sexual morality in this ancient world, in the the Greco-Roman Gentile world. I don't ask this question just to teach you Bible trivia, but we'll see that the standards for what determines sexual morality in the Gentile world in the first century are very much the same standards that the average American or Western person operates with today. The first authority in in Thessalonica would be your bodily urges. And that was the case in Thessalonian Gentile culture, just as it is the case in secular American culture today, that, that it's as if there is a standard of morality that is determined by what you want to do, by your passions, by your urges. The passion a person feels towards another person is a powerful force, and this was determining how people thought about sexuality or what is, what is even sexually good. There would have been undoubtedly people in the Thessalonian church who thought at times that a strong sexual desire in a certain direction means that the corresponding sexual act would be appropriate because there's that desire within them, so they should act on it. And so, again there, the authority is the urge itself, the desire itself. Paul warns against being swept away by the passion of lust. And he says that's what's happening in Gentile culture all around people. There is no divine authority over their understanding of sex, but it's all coming from within them. What people want to do, they should do in this Gentile culture. Uh, Commentator Jeff Wyma, who was my professor of New Testament at Calvin Theological Seminary, wrote um, an outstanding commentary on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And in this commentary, he gives example after example of ancient documents that communicate how sexual ethics were so often determined by just what people feel like they should do, by their urges. Uh, In a a fairly shocking example, Demosthenes, who was a very influential philosopher 300 years before Christ, wrote this. He said, uh, as Wyma quotes in his commentary, mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives in order to bear us legitimate children and to serve as trustworthy guardians over our households. So this is very influential still in Paul's day in terms of what was determining sexual ethics. Well, what do you want to do? And particularly for men who are wealthy in this culture, it was essentially a free-for-all. So mistresses for sexual pleasure, that would have also included prostitutes. Concubines for day-to-day physical well-being, that was a sexual reference as well. And wives to sort of raise up children. So the premise here is simple. Follow your heart. Do what you want. Do what you can. Do what you feel like doing. Will our desires determine our sexual ethics? That's one option for what determines it. And alongside the appeal to a person's desires, there would have been social pressures pushing people in certain directions concerning their sexual ethics as well. So there's the desire from within, but then there's also the pressure outside of people. And uh, again, it's very much the same in this ancient culture as it is today. It looked 
pretty different because of the cultic religious practices where sexual activity would have been a part of going to many of the temples of the ancient world. There was pressure um, in, in the business sense, in the political sense, in the social sense to go participate in cultic temple worship where sexual activity was a part of, sadly, a part of those worship services where there would be temple prostitutes. And this meant that a person, especially a man, was pressured to comply with his neighbor's expectations of sexual behavior by participating in sex acts during religious ceremonies. And more regularly, of course, we can easily assume that the attitude of Demosthenes would have been communicated in far less eloquent ways in regular conversations that men would have with one another about their sexual needs being fulfilled. And so they, they would have pressured one another in that day in the same way that happens, we can imagine, on a college campus today. When I read that quote from Demosthenes, it sounded a little bit to me like the way people talk about going to college today. Well, people would almost say, there they go off to college. It's a time of sexual experimentation. And anything less than that time of experimentation would be repressive to these young people's urges and, um, they would say, sexual needs. And so, Sexual promiscuity was a given in this society in the same way that it's kind of regarded as a given in our own society, especially for a young single person. Desires within and pressure without form a persuasive team, don't they? These are so often the authorities that people look to for what should determine sexual behavior. What do I feel like doing and what, do the, what are the people around me doing? What strikes me is that both authorities are human authorities. There's the authority within you and there's the authority of the culture around you. They're both human in nature. And that's where we can see great similarity between this ancient Greco-Roman understanding of sex and how people develop sexual ethics in America today. There's so much trouble and so much sadness and misery in our culture because people look to human authorities concerning sexual ethics instead of God's authority. If you'll allow me a few more technical terms that I think are really important, and I know I use technical theological terms sparingly in our church, but these are important ones, especially concerning sexual ethics. This is a battle between a theocentric, God-centered view or an anthropocentric, man-centered understanding of how we develop our ethics. Do we start with the question of God? Do we start with a theocentric view and ask, what does God say? What is the will of God? What does his word say? And then work our way down from that, developing a sexual ethic? Or do we start with the man-centered, the human-centered question? What do my urges suggest? And what is the culture teaching me? And then almost work your way backwards into the Bible looking for support for that. Again, they're, they're technical terms, but eminently important for this, for this passage and for sexual ethics in general. 
do we derive our understanding about sex from God and his word or from human urges and cultural expectations and norms? Is it theocentric or anthropocentric? That's at the core of Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians. There is an anthropocentric understanding of sex in our culture that pervades conversations on sexual ethics. And I want to tell you, it is not far away in sort of uh, the, the uh, gender studies classes of um, liberal universities and so forth. It is actually quite close to us. I want to read to you a quote from The Banner from 2013. And as I'm reading this quote, you could ask, is this a theocentric sexual ethic or an anthropocentric sexual ethic that we're being taught in this quote from Harry Van Bell, who was a retired psychology professor, in an article titled Sex, Intimacy, and the Single Person. He, he wrote, Sex belongs within an intimate, committed relationship between two reasonably mature young people. But I do think, based on these same principles, that the church should change its stance on premarital cohabitation recognizing that such relationships enable single adults to respond in a responsible way to the times they live in. Shockingly bad teaching from our denominational magazine in 2013. This actually created quite a firestorm of responses, thankfully, (laughs) um, although I, I don't believe it was ever retracted, this bad, unbiblical teaching. Van Bell's premise is anthropocentric, isn't it? What are the kids doing these days? What do young people like to do these days? How would they uh, express their sexuality in a way that Harry Van Bell regards as good? Van Bell's premise through the article, and this isn't just taking it out of context, this is the point that he's making, is that cohabitation and premarital sex in our culture is so ubiquitous, it's so prevalent, that the church should adjust our teaching to spare these young people from guilt. So, the article is an example of reasoning our way up to a sexual ethic from a human level instead of reasoning our way down to a sexual ethic starting at what does God's Word say. It is textbook, anthropocentric sexual ethics. So, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, just contrast, I'm, we're going to reread verses 3 through 8. Contrast Paul's teaching with the false teaching of Harry Van Bell. Sadly, sadly published in our denominational magazine. Shockingly. Contrast that with what the Apostle Paul wrote. Look for the theocentrism of what Paul wrote in verses 3 through 8. For this is the will of God. That's a good start. For your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so he's saying, what is their problem? They don't know God, so they don't understand what healthy sexuality should look like that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. That's a little phrase that we could skip over quickly, but this is a solemn, serious, weighty matter. 
with huge consequences as we solemnly warn you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It's all theocentric. What is the will of God? What does God say? What does his word teach concerning how we think about sex? Rather than asking, what are the people around me doing? The Christian asks, what does God say? What is God's will? If there's one takeaway from this message and from the teaching of Paul in 1 Thessalonians, that's it. Regarding sexual ethics and really every other ethical matter as well. That as we raise up young people, this is the hinge point. This is what the Apostle Paul wants the Thessalonians to know and what we all need to know and what we need to impart on our young people. Do we start with what is the culture saying or what does God say? What does the Word say? What is God's will concerning this matter? He said, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So he says, this isn't just a matter of cultural um, emphasis, of cultural interpretation. God's will for healthy, fruitful sex lives is in his word. He's taught us what is God's will, if we would summarize it. God's will for healthy, fruitful sex lives is that it is a good gift meant to be enjoyed between a man and woman in the covenant of marriage. It is a good gift meant to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. To act outside of that good command of God is not merely to disregard human interpretation of the Bible. That's often the... um, the counter-argument to our, theologic, our, our sexual ethics. People would say, no, that's just a man-centered view. That's just a cultural interpretation. But here Paul is saying, no, it is actually to disregard God himself. It's not man we're following here, but the will of God for all of our lives, including regarding sex. But notice how Paul grounds his teaching in, in such a positive way. In our passage, he's not just giving prohibitions here, but he's grounding what good sexual ethics would look like in a person's life. He isn't just saying what we should not do, but he's giving encouragement to be sanctified in this matter, to be holy um, before God with how we use our bodies. In uh, his letters to the Corinthians, the the Apostle Paul gave this uh, this great teaching that is people are familiar with that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So he gave that teaching in the context of sexual ethics. And he does pretty much the same thing here, although he doesn't use the temple of the Holy Spirit language. He says, the Holy Spirit is within you, and so you should act in a way that displays that in all areas of your life, including with our bodies, um, in how we, um, and how we think of sexual ethics. So the Holy Spirit being present in you, in your life, active in your thoughts, active in your behavior, will draw you in line with God's will for your, your, um, 
for your, your sex life as well, your sexual ethics. This gives a positive purpose to be sexually pure rather than simply the negative prohibition against extramarital sex. So Christian sexual morality isn't just what is God's law, but it is how does my behavior show the Spirit's presence in my life, whether I am unmarried or married. The biblical description of sex is that it is a good thing that God desires for a husband and a wife to enjoy in marriage. And I'll remind you of the teaching of Song of Solomon that I always give young couples during premarital counseling sessions. Um, We spend a week talking about sex during premarital counseling just to get a, a biblical understanding and ask this basic question Paul asks here, what is the will of God concerning sex? And I'll remind you of uh, this great teaching from the New American Commentary on Song of Solomon that put it so well, I even committed it to memory and, and gladly share this with every young couple, that sex is not a bad thing permitted by marriage, it is a good thing protected by marriage. That corrects so many errors. That nice little proverb, sex is not a bad thing permitted by marriage, it is a good thing protected by marriage. A good thing. This means that the Holy Spirit will prompt non-married people to abstain from sex. This means that the Holy Spirit will prompt married people to enjoy sex that is edifying and enjoyable for a husband and a wife. There it is. God's will for, um, for sex. So as I start to close, I want to remind you that there is good news for people who have strong desires and are tempted towards sexual sin. What the Apostle Paul here, the Greek word he used was porneia. And so, of course, that, that, that um, falls right in line with things that people are tempted with often in our culture today. Not just pornography, but all number of sexual sins. First, I want to remind you of my teaching that I gave to high school students when we were discussing the sin of pornography. And really, this applies to all sin, including sexual sin. That is, that there is grace in Christ for all sinners. There is grace in Christ, and in the church, there is help to fight temptation. That's why Paul was writing to the Thessalonians. So frankly, he intended for this letter to be read in the presence of all the church so that people would know there's grace for people who have sinned in this way, and your church, you Thessalonians, is going to be a place of grace and of truth and of help for people who have struggled in this way. No matter what their sin, they're going to find grace and help. The biblical approach to sexual sin is that it is serious and that in the church we help one another fight against that sin in the power of Christ. It is a serious matter. Again, the the Apostle Paul wrote a lot about this to the Corinthian church. And he said sexual sin has a particular kind of seriousness because it's a a sin against yourself in such a profound um, way that has psychological, emotional, physical consequences. All sin has 
impact on our lives. And Paul says this is especially serious. And so we in the church ought to take it in an especially serious way as well. Helping one another, showing grace to each other, and fighting against sin and the power of Jesus. Second, we have some really great promises from God in 2 Peter chapter 2 about how he will help us in matters of sexual temptation. So, Peter wrote, if, if God rescued righteous Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Doesn't that describe us in a culture that is so sexualized and so perverse in so many ways? This is the experience of Lot in, in Sodom. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So as God rescued Lot, so he can also rescue you. Consider one of Jesus' best followers was a former prostitute. You see these women walking the streets in Stockton, That was one of Jesus' best followers, a woman called out of that life and into following Jesus, transformed by the power of Christ to follow him, to live for him, to be holy in God's sight through Christ. You can be rescued. You can be sanctified. You can be made holy and pure before God through faith in Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches that the person who is born again will see progress in obeying all God's commands, not just some. And that includes in our sex lives. The person who is born again in Christ will see progress in saying no to ungodliness and following Jesus more fully. Finally, I want to close with how we might think about this and talk about it um, when it comes to sexual ethics in our culture. Given that our theology of sexuality is built on a foundation of knowing God, it's anthropocentric, or sorry, it's theocentric, our rhetoric about sexual behavior must include evangelism and encouragement to believe in God if somebody is going to live in a way that is in line with God's will. And so instead of just thinking about sexual ethics and neglecting the call to Christ, the call to Christ is always foremost and at the, at the beginning and from a person's regeneration in Christ, from their knowing God, they're able to say no to their passionate lusts as the Apostle Paul wrote. They, they're living in that way because he said they don't yet know God. They don't understand who God is. They don't know who Jesus is. They have an anthropocentric view of, of sex and that makes sense given that they don't yet know God. So here's how that might work. Before you ask a question about sexual ethics, is a person behaving in the way that God would want, ask the question of regeneration. Does this person know God? Do they know Jesus? Do they want to submit their whole life to the standard of the Word of God, the plain teaching of the Scriptures concerning all areas of our life, including sexual ethics? 
There must be evangelism in our conversations about sex. The goal of Paul's letter and the goal of the church is first to help people know Jesus, to know Jesus Christ and to know the will of God, and from that flows our understanding of sex, from that flows our understanding of all the areas or, or, or of how God wants us to act in all areas of our lives. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray.